everyone. I'm Tish Conlon for another episode of Tish Talk. Today we have Matthew Eric back. And most of you know Matthew and love him. He's an incredible Canadian patriot, brilliant mind. I mean, he's been interviewed all over the world for his incredible insights into history and his accuracy about the, the fifth pillars or deep state within many countries. Uh, for those of you who haven't bought his books yet, please do so. I'm trying to read uh, through as many of them as possible. You can find them at CanadianPatriot.org or RisingTideFoundation.net. Today, we're going to talk about uh, some of the geopolitical events that, you know, this crisis, this terrible thing happening within the Middle East. Uh, Matthew's going to explain it to us, sort of the historical roots, as well as tackling Germany. Um, Germany is a fascinating country now. We see uh, with Israel um, what's happening and the atrocities there. But Germany itself has had um, incredible talent, uh, thinking, deep thinking, and of course, all of the historical events that led up to the wars and the Holocaust. So over to Matthew today. How are you, Matthew? I'm I'm great, Tish. Always a pleasure. Ah, uh, awesome. So your incredible brain power and incredible detail on historical events. So much is going on in the world right now. A lot of people are very confused by the response to what's happening in the Middle East, how tragic it is. I mean, people's lives, uh, I mean, brutal murder of women and children. Um, and yet you have all over the world uh, protests um, and, you know, people celebrating uh, under the flag of the Hamas, which, you know, is a terrorist organization. So, you know, you have Canadian Fred Hahn from QP fighting against parental rights, um, but supporting um, this terrorist organization. And I know it's so confusing to people. What's going on? Uh, what yeah. are the what historical roots of what's happening right now? And then leading back to Germany. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you're starting from the, the question on the historical roots, because often with these sorts of dynamic issues, um, it's very easy to get sucked in emotionally into the framing as it is being given to us uh, by by media. And, and whether you look at the those who are pro Hamas or those who are pro uh, Israel's response to this, um, I don't think you're going to find anybody who's got who's walking on the right side of history at this moment. Like there's no clean, clear, uh, good guy as such within this process. It's a, it's a lot more nuanced in, in some sense. And I know I'm going to piss people off just by saying that. Cause they're like, look at what I've seen. It's yes. so terrible. It's so clearly black and white. And it's like, well, in this discussion we're going to have, I'm hoping to enrich that a little bit by adding context. And I think, Pulling the, the mind out of the myopic focus on that area within the geographical great game, as the British have called it for centuries, just mm -hmm. taking a step back and looking right. at the global chemistry, I think is always important. And when you, whenever you have yeah. one of these um, anomalous bursts of violence in the world, especially the world, any world that is shaped by oligarchical influences, as our world certainly is, you have to be aware that there is something being subverted when this happens. It's the the cause of it won't be found within Israel or Palestine, within the Gaza, within the West Bank. You, you won't find the answer, the causal agency of what's causing this if you keep your mind focused myopically just on that region. You have to look at the whole. 
Right. I know, um, you know, and you've talked about this more than anyone. And I I just watched another mini documentary on the fact that when you look at all the wars before uh, they privatized the money with all the the bankers, there really wasn't world wars. There was skirmishes and conflicts. They they created all this. When you look behind the wars, you find the bankers, the military industrial complex and the bankers. So that if they promote war, they benefit, they fund both sides. Nobody wins. Peace is not profitable for them. They want to keep up with the money lending um, and extracting of money from as you know as many countries as possible. People simply look at peace from that perspective, no matter what was done in the past, because they fuel the hate, they fuel the division for profit. Well, <clears throat> there's a there's two different types of banking that have expressed themselves throughout history, and one type sees profit as being something tied to creation, um, the other one as extraction. And if you look at the the two different traditions of finance, you know, because a lot of people, they just see, okay, banking has been behind a lot of the wars and thus banking is the problem. If you get rid of like banking, then you won't have wars. And it's like, well, no, not really. Because there's this oligarchical agency that has that has been using everything that they will contaminate to this to serve their ends. So when you actually look at it from a, from a scientific standpoint, and this gets us back into the question of the Middle East today the 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 objective measures of value are much more tied to peace cooperation stability because when you have when you're not killing your clients <laughs> when you're not killing your customers and people's lives are getting in more enriched they're living longer they're consuming more they're producing more if they're educated and they have industry well that might take time to develop the infrastructure to develop the manufacturing the hard productivity capabilities the knowledge base that would be needed to have workers that would not just be physical human animals laboring on a plantation, which doesn't require a lot of education. But if you have like a machine tool um, uh, operator, that's somebody who requires a lot more investment in their mental powers in time. They have to have more knowledge. They have to be able to make better judgments. Um, that means more more wisdom. That's a type of society which oligarchies tend to despise because they know that if you unleash that type of aptitude within the society where people expect to live well and have dignity and and appreciate the pleasures of the mind more than the pleasures of like eating a hot dog at a, at a baseball game as like the greatest pleasure I could have or something uh, sensual, but rather the pleasures of the mind is being qualitatively greater. That's a society that becomes very unwieldy and unwilling to adapt to systems of empire. So I think with the current dynamic today, shaping the Middle East, it's important. I, and I think it's, again, a tragedy that if you look back even a, a week ago, before October 7th, before the the attack by Hamas um, was launched, we had never been in a better place as far as achieving a durable uh, formula for peace in the Middle East. Why do I say this? I say this because you have had... Um, several things occurring. You've had the Belt and Road Initiative, which has three major arteries, corridors, growing from China through Europe that pass through the Middle East, one through directly um, through Iran, Iraq, Syria, into Lebanon, um, with discussions to pass other arteries down through Saudi Arabia that are already beginning with high-speed rail across Saudi Arabia, another artery that would go through Jordan and into Egypt, 
Um, another artery being extended through Saudi Arabia down into Yemen and down into Djibouti, Ethiopia, and the broader African zone, where there's a major Pan-African revival against empire currently underway. Um, you have a normalization of relations. A lot of this was made possible through the Abraham Accords that were first put into motion in 20, 2019 by Donald Trump, but also that were endorsed and supported in large measure by the Russians, by the Chinese, that involved the normalizing of relations between Israel and various Arab countries in that region. Very important. Saudi Arabia was a big promoter of this. So was the UAE. Um, so was Egypt. Now, the thing here also about this is not just the normalization of relations, but also the uh, the joining of many of these entities, these 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 nations into the Belt and Road, uh, the, the BRICS, the BRICS Plus. So you have Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iran, Iran being a rival of Saudi Arabia for many decades, but both would, will be joining the BRICS Plus Alliance in January of 2024, along with Egypt and Ethiopia. These are strategically very important arteries on the on the on the on the world, you know, the world map, representing major civilizational forces, not just nations, but civilizational for forces that are ancient. These are all being revived around this idea also of a new BRICS development bank that they're all members of. That is an alternative lending mechanism outside of the influence of the IMF and the World Bank that would provide for uh, the type of credit that we have seen uh, to you know, pull a billion people out of poverty through the Belt and Road Initiative of China and other things. You also have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So Saudi Arabia is an observer state for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. India, Pakistan, Iran are all members. It's sort of like a counterpole to NATO. That's also been growing. There's another 10 nations waiting on the waiting list to join that, that organization led by Russia, China, Iran. Russia and China also have had... Uh, played a key role in bringing about massive economic development. China has a uh, $400 billion um, trade deal with Iran on energy security um, and transport corridors, as well as building up industrial bases within Iran. Russia has a similar $20 billion energy security deal with Iran. Um, that's part of the integration of Eurasia into a, a group, a dynamic that would be based on long, large scale development, Peace corridors. So this gets they're using banking. This gets us at that question we, which I just touched on. Banking used very differently because there they recognize that investing in peace is more profitable. And so you had um peace deals with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, brokered by the Chinese. That's now that ended the seven-year foreign instigated war with with between the Yemenis and the Houthis and the Saudis. You have a normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran that had broken down in 2016. That has now been revived. They're building up their embassies again. They're they're building up trade corridors between the two. You also have Syria, Bashar al-Assad and his wife, and a massive trade delegation just returned back to Damascus after a very uh, fruitful um, foray into Beijing. And Syria is a part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and there are major deals to revive Bashar al-Assad's Five Seas vision, a major policy Bashar al-Assad was fighting for in 2009, which was disrupted by the Arab Spring, and the later, you know, we know what happened there, which basically calls for, and he had something like 12 nations, including Turkey, Azerbaijan, Armenia, many others, uh, who signed on to Memoranda of Understanding to build the, the Five Seas vision. That's now being revived as serious discussion because it's very much in synergy with the Belt and Road Initiative that calls for connecting the major five uh, water systems, the Red Sea, the Caspian, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea, missing one, 
um, around an, a coordinated development corridor. The last thing, too, I mentioned also, I've already mentioned the Belgian Road Initiative, which is bringing in um, real viable reconstruction for the Middle East that's been destroyed by 20 plus years of, of war on terror. That's now finally there's a hope in the Middle East um, to to rebuild. But also you have the North-South Transportation Corridor also that's been advancing at a very fast pace, led by Russia and India and Iran. And this is something people in the West, many think tanks have tried to frame as antithetical to the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the BRI is the East-West New Silk Road Trade Corridor. But this is a North-South one going from Russia's Arctic down into the southern ports of Bandar Abbas uh, and Shabahar or Bandar Abbas in Iran, which then bring goods to and from India through a completely different corridor that would pass through Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, as well as the other side of the Caspian around um, Turkmenistan and, uh, and a variety of other. But then there's there's all, all sorts of incredible branching out corridors that would even go into Israel. So this is what this is where people have to take that step back from the Palestine Israel conflict. Take a step back, look at mm -hmm. the whole terrain, right? The, look at what's being yeah. disrupted because this is also tied to what was the 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 arsonists that were lighting fires between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I was going to ask you about that because that gets absolutely no media coverage, and yet no. that there's a huge amount of uh, of people having to flee. Can you um, can you yeah. just briefly explain? Uh, to this audience, what's going on? What you know? What's the issue uh, with that situation as well? Just as an, uh, just so they can investigate further, because these are all connected. It's happening. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's very much connected. Keep in mind what I'm about to say about Armenia and Azerbaijan is connected exactly to what's happening in Georgia, right above Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is also an artery for the the, mm -hmm. the international north south transportation corridor. There is currently a major crisis there too where the government of the, the Georgia Dream Party has just arrested uh, foreign operatives who have been caught training um, uh, provocateurs and uh, and training useful young idiots who don't know how they're being used in a color revolutionary attempt. This Georgia already suffered a color revolution in 2003. Um, among those foreign funded operatives uh, that are tied to the Center for Applied Nonviolent Actions and Strategy, which is an outgrowth of Otpor, uh, that gave rise to the 2003, you know, Rose Revolution that brought in Saakashvili, a, a Soros stooge um, who's currently in prison, that they're preparing it again. There's been groundwork and, and many of these activists are being trained currently in Poland and Western Ukraine to be sent back to be part of, as the government of Georgia has recently announced uh, from their findings, um, a planned riot would be sparked sometime between now and December, just as the European Union is discussing integrating Georgia into the European uh, Union that's currently happening um, and bombs would are apparently being set planned to go off killing civilians who would be set up in tent cities in the Georgian capital to provoke massive unrest and one of the key figures who's uh, uh, been found out to be behind a lot of this is a figure whose name is Mamuka Mamulash who is the head of the Georgia Legion the Georgia okay. Legion was discovered by investigative reporters, and this has been documented even by the Russian uh, Foreign Office as having been behind the uh, the shooting of civilians and police officers in the Maidan in 2014 in Ukraine, whereby, you know, you had this weird situation where both protesters and the police were all being killed 
by these uh, sharpshooters. These were tied to the Georgia Legion. Oliver Stone did a, a good deep dive on this as well. In what was few- it called for the audience? Uh, I, I believe it was Ukraine on Fire was the okay. Oliver Stone film. Excellent. Um, so you have now these hardcore fascist operatives, provocateurs being deployed yet again to do this, but it's not being done because of anything particular to Georgia, but rather the role that Georgia plays within the great game on a on a, on a strategic pivot. Armenia was formerly very pro-Russia, mm-hmm. and due to a George Soros uh, style, uh, actually it was George Soros was connected to this directly, uh, and CIA funded color revolution in 2018, the pro-Russian government there was overthrown and Pashinyan, who's the current uh, head of, of Armenia, that government, was brought in as a Western-leaning pro-NATO stooge who had been used ever since then to create provoca- provocations with Azerbaijan. And don't get me wrong, Azerbaijan has not been playing in a smart way either. They've been playing into their own biases and prejudices with their own desire to have a greater control, especially of their um their little enclave which is separated from the rest of azerbaijan inside of armenia and so anytime that somebody sees a nation that has that's broken up and separated territorially from itself Mm -hmm. by another nation representing a different ethnicity who's hostile to it you know that there's the hand of british uh imperial manipulation somewhere behind the scenes that carve that out whether in africa whether in israel palestine where it's like you look at palestine and you got like the gaza strip and the west bank having no connection and you're like how yeah. did that happen well it happened because well, the british the british made that happen that that goes back it, this is all created by british intelligence to get the effect of chaos well i have yeah. to mention since you brought that up as well i've noticed that wherever you see this effort to divide um mm. you get conflict like what's happening this embarrassing thing in canada not embarrassing but this terrible this assassination of, I guess, a a radical uh, extremist in BC who wanted an independent state in Punjab. And I forget what, you'll know what they're called, the Kun... Kalistanis. Kalistanis. So is that the the same sort of... It's always the same. I mean, pushing this radicalization. um, Yeah. Can you explain that briefly as well? Just that, because it's... Yeah, but if if you're running for office, you probably don't want me to talk about too much about uh, the Anglo-Canadian relations with uh, Khalistan and how that's being used uh, to blow up India. Um, So let's let's actually, I'll withhold on this one for a little bit. Okay, just say that that, you know, wherever they, you have to question wherever these, uh, you know, this fueling conflict... Uh, in these regions. So fascinating. Um, So let's continue. I mean, uh, we are eventually going to get to Germany, but um, how can you tie this to, um, you know, what's happening on, um, you know, in Europe and particularly what's happened with Germany and what role they played historically that brought them to the point where Germany is imploding right now? I mean, such a strong nation. I lived there for a year. I have no German ancestry. Uh, at all, but I was always fascinated by their work ethic. Um, you know, very rational people. Well, and I love their literature. I mean, there's beauty, such beauty yeah. from the German people given to the world with music and literature. People like Goethe, oh, who yeah. studied Mozart. You know, you have incredible talent and deep, deep thinking. So, oh, yeah. and then we're today where the the country's being overridden. Um, you know, they're yeah. not even using energy. They're going back to coal. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's sick, eh? Try, try um, well, I I think the British British High Command uh, at the earliest days of NATO outlined um, the purpose of NATO or the purpose of British grand strategy in NATO, which was to um, keep the 
Americans in, the Russians out, and Germans down. Um, oh, that's excellent. Yeah, clear strategy. Yeah, yeah it's very clear cut. And the the one of the obsessive factors in global grand strategy um, from the part of the Anglo-American imperialists has been to stop the, and I say Anglo-American here, it's for people who don't maybe know how I think um, or who haven't read my works or anything, I've written as a word of just like side note, yeah. I've written a series of books called The Clash of the Two Americas to get across that America can't be treated as one nation, but rather as a clash of two opposing paradigms vying for uh, control over the the nation culturally, economically, militarily, one having been rooted in the traditions of the Roman Republic, um, which was studied by the founding fathers. This is the studies, the the, the traditions of Cicero, the Platonists, the, the nation builders who didn't want empire, but wanted to be an example, a role model, a city on a hill versus the traditions, those the heirs of the Roman Empire. After Cicero was murdered and Rome became a, an empire, mm. um, it lost sort of what you might call, if you were a Chinese philosopher, the mandate of heaven. Yes. It fell out of out of sync with the with the city of God. If you were a a, a, a Christian humanist or an Augustinian, um, it it basically became defiant of the law, the moral laws of the universe, and became a, a suppressive, oppressive force. Um, and so you have two different opposing currents in not just inside of America, but you have this inside of Russia. You have these two opposing. You could write books on the, the clash of the two Russias, the clash of the two Indias, mm-hmm. the clash of the two Britons. So I don't want to try to make it sound like I'm I'm talking about any one nation yes. as a simplistic thing. Yes, um, even the clash of the two Canadas, and I think that was an excellent book that every political uh, you, you know leader should read. What was your title again of the, the Canadian series? Yeah, well, that, that was volume three that you that you read called the on the untold history of Canada. And you're right, it was sort of the clash of the two Canadas, and it was called the Canada's forgotten struggle for progress, volume three. Excellent. Um, volume four and volume two also go into that in other de- in other directions. But um, when talking about British grand strat, Anglo-American grand strategy, their obsession, as I was going to say, has been to prevent the natural coalescence of a pro-development um, ethic from Germany, Russia, France, and the USA. And at different moments in history, unfortunately, we rarely had a convergence at the same time in history, usually you'll have the the good guys, so to speak, right? The 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 pro nation builders, anti imperialists, come to dominance within any of these countries, while the other countries were still under the control of fifth column deep state operations that prevented them from acting good, a- acting in the correct manner. Occasionally, we did have a convergence where the the people with the right way of thinking and wisdom into um, covert operations of the of the empire were able to emerge into positions of of power of influence in a good way mm-hmm. um which threatened the strategic holds of the systems of the british the anglo-venetian empire structures of banking that have been trying to keep us in a in a state of constant war constant ignorance and effectively um routine what routine you said poverty you know poverty, poverty want yes. scarcity Effectively, mm-hmm. feudalism, depopulation, that's mm-hmm. been always the objective. The constancy going back to ancient times of empire has been to uh, create an order that also involves not just a material uh, control, but a cultural self-control because culture is the field, which gets mm-hmm. at your question that we're going to talk about more of what's the power and the battleground of culture. Culture is the field that shapes our identities, whether you have a slave identity 
or a free identity will be determined by what type of cultural field you shaped you that you were born into, but that you in turn can feasibly shape in as well as a person, right? Both Absolutely. These Very belief systems, to... we've come across them during COVID and it's unbelievable. Once you start seeing these belief mm -hmm. systems acting out and you can see these, these negative belief systems destroying whole countries and, 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 and groups within groups. So it's fascinating. I wanted to ask you if you believe we're in a moment of convergence now, that there's enough people compiled on the good side that we will see a shift um, in our lifetime for an improvement. Oh yeah, feasibly. Like I said, I, I, it's a bit of a tragic moment in some ways. It, it could become really tragic if people, uh, don't, uh, focus on the issues at, at hand shaping our lives. There's a lack of focus. Um, but like I mentioned earlier on in today's interview, uh, I had never seen such a convergence of civilizational states, civilizational forces all converging around a common view of what the future could can be and must be as well as the the nature of the arsonists the um the dirty players who have been trying to light fires both inside of the various countries of india of china of russia of iran because there are there like i said there's deep states inside of these countries but you have now currently a coalition of leaders who seem to have play uh recognized those uh mo's and have done a very impressive job i would say battling and extracting that deep state garden from their from their uh, their own backyards as well as navigate outside of their own borders to bring about things like i mentioned the international north south transportation corridor and other things now on your question of germany there is a concerted effort to destroy um the industrial traditions of germany germany and france probably are the only two viable industrial productive nations left in europe there has been a conscious effort to undermine and destroy the productive forces of labor over the course of the entirety of the Cold War, which is accelerated with the Maastricht uh, Treaty of 1992 that began really consolidating control to a, a private corporate class of technocrats above the nations and the, the elected officials within the European region. And the you could just see it. Just look at the, the trends towards financialization, speculation, debt-based uh, money printing that is devoid of any a connection to the real productive economy, which just like in the case of Canada or the United States over that same period as NAFTA was brought online, we've seen a destruction of our manufacturing, uh, an atrophy of our infrastructure, um, a disinvestment of all of those R&D sectors that were going to push us towards fusion power, um, third, fourth generation nuclear desalination, all of the powerhouse uh scientific discoveries have been consciously undermined and then we are told of course oh see fusion's always 30 years away it'll never happen and they just it's dishonest it's dishonest yes. but they but they really want to destroy especially germany because germany has had a tradition of at various times like i would i would there's several times throughout the 20th century even now germany has played a big role in egypt's aspirations to develop nuclear power as well as high-speed rail germany it's german and french companies together who are working on the industrial policies in morocco in egypt in a big part of uh the middle east at different times in africa and these like in the case of sudan the you know one of the biggest canals uh ever built was was 90 percent finished connecting the white and blue nile which would have completely been a revolution in agricultural production and, and electricity generation and flood controls of the South Sudan 
which was built by German and French companies um, who had the unique power to, to carve out, to build the machinery, to carve out these type of massive canals. It's huge. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it was a foreign instigated war, a civil war in the 80s that put an end to that project, which currently it just sits there as a 90% completed canal, 10% not done. And, and there's been an agenda to keep Africa poor, impoverished and flooding itself so that such things could not happen. And part of that um, that program has been to yeah, make Germany um, incapable of playing any role in the world or even to protect its own people. That's part of what the Nord Stream 2 sabotage of that pipeline was. Um, I, I, I agree with you. And I know uh, some people consider this woman controversial, but I, I think she's been mislabeled Christine Anderson. I listened to her speak about, um, severe issues with migrants in Germany, and and it's similar to Canada with, uh, you know, under diversity, equity, inclusion, having all these people come. She says a lot of them can't speak English, have no skills coming into the country. They have a different value system, um, particularly when it comes to women. So we're seeing these heinous rapes going on on a regular basis. And she said that, uh, that, you know, indigenous Germans will be the minority in their own country. And uh, there's there's a lot of sad realities about that because that strong German at work ethic, the, the German language, the literature, a lot of people don't uh, have no interest mm-hmm. in actually learning about German literature or the great thinkers at all. So this is a, a huge issue happening in Europe and it's coming uh, to North America with the border issue with the US and even Canada with unsustainable immigration levels. And again, I'm pro-immigration. I have had a recruitment firm, wonderful people coming from all over the world with skills. But what we're seeing now is something completely different that is seems like a, a grandmaster strategist, if you're going to use those words, uh, efforts to destroy uh, Western countries in, in, in easily in large numbers. So particularly Germany, Germany is, is struggling enormously with this. So, I mean, I feel for them 100%. Yes. Well, my my approach on this is like, yeah, there's a variety of tools being deployed to undermine the sovereign nation state system and the culture associated with sovereign nation states. That 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 being one of them, the Soros funded, you know, open border policy. That that's that's one aspect of diluting, diffusing the the necessary cultural memory of a people. Um, now that doesn't mean immigration is bad. I, I know you also. Th- are, are pro-immigration, uh, you know, yes. but at the same time, there's a dishonesty uh, uh, in terms of this particular policy and pathway. But my approach has been to try to, again, there's a lack of focus and a desire to blame and to, and to feel like a victim. And they work it, whether you're on the left or on the right, there's different ways that they play the, the, the victim identity, where which destroys our ability to think clearly as sovereign people taking responsibility for our lives in the world. It, Absolutely, it, it, it muddies the water, right? And I so with whenever I approach this, I always try to get across the empire. If you want to be anti, like if you want to be anti Soros and this whole mm-hmm. subversion of the nation state through the immigration policy, you have to be anti empire because the reason why this is even an issue in the first place, it's not like these people want to come to Germany or Canada or the U.S. They'd rather stay in their homeland of whatever it is, Libya or Iraq or Syria or uh, Mexico or whatever. A lot of these people who are coming in would rather be in their homeland. The the reason why they can't be they're not they don't find it viable in the first place to be in their homeland is through things that weren't caused by the, those particular countries. Yes. The Middle East, we bombed the hell out of those countries. We bombed Libya. It was almost impossible in 2009, before 2010, to find uh, Libyan um, immigrants in Canada 
almost never happened. Why? Because Libya had one of the highest quality standards of life under Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone was supplied a, a, a free education. You could even uh, go to another university in another country and have it wow. paid for by the government. Free health care, a, yes. a robust industrial economy, a policy that involved building big infrastructure. Um, and so people didn't want to leave their country. Which um, is the way it should be, right? If it's your homeland, your culture, your language. But it, when you can't live there, I mean, uh, yeah. what do you do? I mean, I met a woman on the streets in my own community, couldn't speak English, panhandling. I felt incredibly sad for her. How is she yeah. going to make it here? I know. It's 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 so like they didn't ask to be regime changed and to be bombed back into the Stone Age. They didn't ask for radicalizing madrasas promoted by the CIA and the Pentagon and, and MI6 to promote radicalizing jihadi groups like uh, the Libyan Shield and the Libyan Islamic fighters groups that are proxies for U.S. militarists to destabilize target countries. They didn't ask for any of that. Mali, people living in Mali didn't ask for Boko Haram funded and promoted and provided logistic support by Western intelligence uh, to be used as weaponized uh, Anglo-American proxies to destabilize Mali and Niger and Nigeria and other other governments in, in, uh, in Africa. No, but you know, th- there's a geopolitical machination at work um, that's created terrorism. I mean, even Ron Paul gave an eloquent speech in Congress in 2000, I think it was 2009, where he made the point, look, Hamas is the outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, um, like ha- Hamas is is what it is. It's it. The Muslim Brotherhood is what it is. These things are not. Uh, and also he makes the point that that Al-Qaeda was created by Zbigniew Brzezinski in the U.S. military or the U.S. with the Pentagon, the CIA, back in the late 70s and 80s to fund radicalizing madrasas to weaponize young Muslim men around a Salafist Wahhabiate um, um, interpretation of the Quran in order to become fighters against the Soviet Union in a geopolitical war that was never about Afghanistan. It was always about drugs and the Soviet mm-hmm. Union and, and destroying America's rival that way through Afghanistan. And creating Al-Qaeda was a part of that. That's why Al-Qaeda even exists is because of U.S. taxpayer money that didn't stop funding it when the U- when the Soviet Union collapsed. It continued. And after the Soviet Union was no longer our enemy when the Cold War ended, we just needed a new enemy to be created. And that's where the war on terror, the war on international terrorism became the replacement for the commies. And yes. so that became the 9-11 operation. That became everything since. And now it's, of course, expanding. But Ron Paul broke this down. And again, when you look at like Muslim Brotherhood, this came from British intelligence, uh, you know, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood was himself a proxy, was a stooge for British intelligence in the 1920s. Um, the founder of Salafism was paid for by the British, was on the payroll of the British Cairo office in the 1880s, who created the Salafist movement that inter- that that it's an interpretation, a way of reading the texts of the Quran that tends to create um, a leaning towards radicalized uh, violence to do jihad against all infidels, that type of thing. That's not, that's not Islam. That's not the, that's, no, that's exactly. not what most but, people like most Christians, you could, you can, you can turn any uh, religious group into radicals. Um, but the, the majority of religious teachings, the majority of people, whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim yeah. or uh, follow Islam is peaceful. It's all about peaceful. And I know the NBA player, I forget his name, but he condemned the violence while supporting the plight of the people. And that's sort of yes. the position I take. And exactly. I think a lot and of just, these- Just one quick, one quick thing. Yeah. I, I was just building this up just to make oh, one- Okay, perfect. Yeah, go here. for it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, is that the- um, Hold on, let me just recapture it again. 
damn it. Hold on. The, 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 uh, I lost it. Never mind. He'll come back oh, later. I'm going to get a few negative comments. Uh, for <laughs> don't, don't stop him. Uh, Sorry, you'll no. get it back. So, I mean, but let's go back in time to uh, Germany and to, uh, you know, big historical events with the world. I got it. I got it. I got oh, it. Sorry, before okay. I forget it. Okay. Perfect. Go for it. If you actually look at the majority of those killed by the hands of jihadis, it's Muslims. It's, it's not, it's not Christians or Jews. The vast majority of people going back to the days when the British were creating, uh, overseeing the creation of the Muslim Brotherhood the, the and things like uh, Haj Amin, the first uh, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a pro-Hitler Mufti later on during the war, but before that was working with the British, protected by the British, and was used to create violent assaults on Jews protected by the British. They wanted to create and inflame chaos and violence within that Middle East as the, the Balfour Accords were preparing the groundwork with Sykes-Picot to carve out a convenient geopolitical region for uh, getting and convincing the the Jews international, especially, especially in Eastern Europe and Russia, to all convene in one convenient little area that could then be lit on fire. Now, Jews and Muslims tended to work very well together. They're, they, historically. They were, historically, yeah. Yes. Their, their tendency was to find points of common ground. So you needed to have the radicalizing, violence-oriented uh, interpreters representing, uh, you know, Rabbi Cook, uh, who was the chief rabbi of British Mandate Palestine for the Jews, who was very much inclined to work with Jabotinsky promoting violence, greater Israel, attacks on, on Arabs, while at the same time, the Grand Mufti, who was very much in alignment with the Muslim Brotherhood, centered by the British because the British controlled the economy of Egypt. Um, they were the ones to then promote attacks on uh, Jews, Jewish Jewish far farmers, families, and other things, and then create hostility and never-ending conflict and pain that would be multi-generational, um, to break the cycle of peace. So that's what the game has always been. And when you see people coming into Canada from these other countries, they don't want to be here. They would rather be in their own country, but we didn't let, there's been an empire effort to crush them and make their lives unlivable there. And so, yeah, you're going to get, you're going to get extremists here. You're going to get all sorts of people who have not been able to access their humanity brought in uh, and other people who are just desperate. They're, they just want to like, feed their families and they can't do it exactly. staying back in Libya. So now they're here. And so it's, it's very important not to fall into the trap that's being set for us because there are agencies that want to create a gang counter gang reaction and radicalize the right conservatives of the world. This is what Steve Bannon is doing. For example, unfortunately, yes. it is creating a, a coalition of right uh, to, to become sort of a, a new storm trooping um, a cultural organization reviving. This is what, what Hitler this is what made Hitler possible was the Bolshevik spread of um, liberal uh, anything goes educational reforms in Hungary and other things that were spreading into Germany uh, in 1919. This is and, and it created such a disgust and a, and, a, and a reactionary movement towards conservatism that it was embraced and absorbed by those very fascist agencies in Mussolini's Italy and Franco's Spain and, and Hitler in Hitler's Germany that then created a, a new crusading movement against the infidels from the from the christian standpoint so right. this is again what they're trying to do yet again they're playing us once more and a lot of the same operatives who are behind that the first time are the same families behind um that this, this time around too yeah and uh, i mean people are confused i mean when we look at the media now it gets very confusing with um you know flags of support for groups with communist flags, for example, with some of these rallies 
uh, for pa pro Palestine, and we and and yet you know people associate communism with terror, and even you'll know this book better than me. Maybe you've read it, Carl Kautsky with Terror and Communism, nineteen nineteen, and then you know the whole Marxist Leninism, um, you know Bolshevikism with violence being used to create these extremist groups. I mean that's like the playbook for them. So I mean it's 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 becoming um, obvious to a lot of people now who are waking up that this has been manufactured. There's even question around why Israel didn't see uh, this assault. Like they have such advanced uh, detection systems. I mean, there's a lot of questions. Um, are, are, are the, is there a, something being created to cause more violence? And we must, uh, no, we don't have the answers and we, the, the, it's heinous what's happened, absolutely. But more violence to beget, to beget more violence, what does that solve? Uh, you know, the only winners are, the, the people are the losers. So peace is always more difficult maybe, but the best solution in the long run Let's go uh, to Germany because the wars that were created uh, shortly after the Federal Reserve was created um, and that there's a lot, you know, there's lots of tales about that on Jekyll Island. They started to create World War One, and I believe it was manufactured uh, like a lot of people. The circumstances were played with to create this big world war. To, to to so they could profit but germany was the bad guy can you take us back in time and and give us a historical perspective on world war one and two and this uh you know this sure. figure this name uh associated with nazism uh hitler and maybe even uh nazism now we have canadians applauding a nazi uh ukraine nazi and you know operation paperclick did did they actually lose world war ii so can mm. you unpack that whole thing sure. And why okay. we have this Nazism being played out around the world. Okay. I just shared a map. Do you see it? Oh, great. Yes. Thank you. I'm okay. so excited to listen to this. Yeah, I think, well, it's a great question. And I, I think it ties it back into the discussion about the Middle East in a, a very important way. Um, what you see there is a map um, featuring the Berlin to Baghdad railway moving um, through Eastern Europe from Berlin uh, via Bulgaria, you see it going through Turkey and down mm -hmm. straight into Baghdad, today's Iraq. Um, this would have been one branch of a multinational uh, rail system that wouldn't be just rail, as is never the case with these sorts of projects, but rather industrial full-spectrum economic hubs that would be built up along the way. Because everywhere where you have a rail, you now have the need to have people working the rail, but also new means to escape the controls of British-dominated maritime shipping. The British have always been able to maintain global controls as a world government by getting everybody to be dependent upon shipping corridors controlled by the British, the British East India Company especially, and British banking, which everybody has to be addicted to. And that was the pound sterling was the, system, the, the basis of world commerce before the end of World War II. Um, so it was very much a tool, just like the U.S. dollar has become after Bretton Woods, of global economic terror um, and being able to just manipulate nations. Now, when you had nations working to develop their inland, their land power, um, it, it liberated them. But it, And it did it in such a manner that it encouraged um, increased commerce and, and cooperation with your partners that you would normally never really have a lot of um, interface with in, you know, the the 19th century or earlier or today. So this was done because 
the Ottoman Empire began to realize that they had to change with the times. The Industrial Revolution was something that they were slow on. They had been manipulated by Anglo-French intrigue for a number of of generations. Uh, They were collapsing. And, you know, I got an image here of 1912. The Ottoman Empire was getting quite weak. Um, There's the Persian and the Ottoman Empire. It's still pretty big, going all the way down to Yemen. Through Iraq, uh, yes, a bunch of Iraq is on there, Syria, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, the whole that that's all their Turkey. So you see, it's it's it was mm-hmm. big. Nineteen twelve is when this is this picture. Nineteen twelve. Okay. Um, in the eighteen seventies, under Otto von Bismarck, this had been discussed in order to help um, save the Ottoman Empire from its collapsing destination, and it it needed to modernize. This was going to be a driving force of that. It needed to uplift the standards of living of their people and increase education. That was a big part of this. And Otto von Bismarck was a grand strategist working in Germany to bring in what was known as the Friedrich List Society, the Friedrich List movement, um, and apply Friedrich List, who was the great um, uh, German industrialist economist who had studied Mm -hmm. in America for five years. He was a leading um, politician. Mm-hmm. And he was probably assassinated by poisoning. They say suicide, but it all the evidence points to poisoning. Um, yes. I studied, it was 1844, his book, and he was really ahead of the game in sort of the economic system, the American system of you know manufacturing, having your own raw materials, yep. um, and then putting protective ter- reasonable protective tariffs on your finished goods and ensuring you had a strong manufacturing base in your own country. I mean, it seems simple. So simple, so simple. And, and you know, he he studied the pro- – he saw a lot of similarities in Germany in the 1820s, 1830s to the problems faced by the young America in the 1780s after the revolution, which was that, you know, you have uh, a very diffused um, system of not of non of, of very localized mini power structures in the course of – in the context of the 15 – or the – sorry, the 13 uh, newly independent states that had no – uh, coordination amongst each other, no friendship amongst each other. They were they were fighting for scraps. There was no common basis of a protective tariff or collecting mm-hmm. uh, taxes or creating any type of economic uh, program that would benefit and unify the nation of America. Same mm-hmm. problem was there also for or no common defense was available. Right. So it was really only a matter of time before the revolution of America would be undone and they would be reabsorbed back into the British Empire. And so Hamilton was the grand strategist who who resolved many of these issues. Um, creating in the U.S. in the U.S. in the U.S.A. Yeah, and this yeah. is what Friedrich List studied when he came to America with Marquis, Marquis Lafayette in 1825. He remained here in America, working with uh, Henry Clay, the American system faction of, of mm-hmm. pro Hamiltonians, fighting to defend with people like Lincoln, like John Quincy Adams, were early on part of this network, who were trying to fight against this Wall Street, London directed Fifth Column in America, and uh, and revive Hamilton's National Bank and the protective tariff. So he did that. He went back to Germany in 1830, um, around the same time that Marquis de Lafayette was organizing his second attempt at a French Revolution, which unfortunately failed. And with that failure, uh, we saw a restoration of oligarchies across Europe. That was that was sick and sad, but that's what happened. But uh, he continued to fight. And and so the Germany was a highly diffused. It wasn't a nation, you know. You had a whole bunch of different baronial dukedoms, uh, princelings that were carryovers from the uh, the Holy Roman Empire, where there were like upwards of two thousand little mini local territorial lords, um, mm-hmm. all over Prussia and and Austria and Germany. 
no no unifying principle of a nation existed. So this is what uh, List fought to bring in was the idea of the Zolverein, the customs union, to say, okay, we're going to unify ourselves. We'll have a, a common tariff, as you just pointed out, very simple, just like America did. We're going to have uh, rail development, internal improvements, driving the behavior of economic investments and, and value. Um, so that's what was done. High focus on rail and roads and canals and education was a big one too. And state-directed credit. So the emission of credit tied to projects that would be tied to bonds affiliated with 5 to 20-year maturation times. This is what Lincoln later brought back with the greenbacks, with the mm -hmm. 520 bonds. Um, you know, 5% interest for 20 years, but it's tied to building the, the transcontinental railway. Uh, other big things that would benefit the nation as well as the individual investor. And this is what was done by, by Bismarck. So when List dies, a lot of this fizzles out. Germany goes through major reverberations under what's known as the Young Germany Movement. When's this? People want to know when Germany became Germany. Like when? Oh, when that, was it? that was around. I I would say that that was really the Zolverein was the biggest breakthrough under lists, but it it only saw real political weight behind it with Otto von Bismarck, who really brought it together in the 1870s, 1880s. Um. Like, do they have a date where they celebrate, like, you know, Canada and the U.S.? That where they I don't think this. I don't think it's this. No, it's more of an economic. Uh, oh, really? It, okay. There, there are dates that celebrate um, the move towards independence, but I, nothing similar to what, as far as I could tell, uh, what the oh, U.S. celebrates, for example. However, so <clears throat> Germany um, under Bismarck wasn't just trying to create a unified nation, but had a foreign policy, just like McKinley's America, Ulysses S. Grant, Grant's America, um, that was based on working for win-win cooperation with other nations. Germany, Otto von Bismarck had great alliances with networks in Russia, especially Count Sergei Vita, um, the great transport minister, finance minister, and later first prime minister of, of Russia, who was a grand strategist. He had a whole network building up state banks, along the uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway. That was what he oversaw the building of with the help of American nation builders from the Henry C. Carey faction of the United States who came to Russia. They were working also on Entente. So every time the British and the at various times the French uh, fifth colonists were trying to spark wars, these never-ending wars in Europe, um, Bismarck was a genius at creating Entente and cooperation peace agreements okay. that would ensure that the traps would not be fall, fell into. At a certain point in the 1890s, um, a major faction of these American system list following figures rose to power in France. And um, they were, I mean, because again, you get you, the evil fascist versions of France that was expressed by things like the Vichy France mm -hmm. in the uh, in World War II and the, organize, the organization of secret armies, the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, in France that became part of the Operation Gladio Nazi networks of NATO um, that carried out the murder of people like John F. Kennedy, his brother, many others was done with these fascists that hated de Gaulle, that tried to kill de Gaulle like 30 times, right? That wanted to maintain French territorial or imperial possessions in Algeria, Tunisia, mm -hmm. uh, everywhere. And uh, that's one France. But then the other France was the Sedi Carnot, who became president. He was the grandson of the great uh, scientist and, and, and uh, chemist. Uh, Sadi Carnot and, and uh, Lazare Carnot, who ran the Ecole Polytechnique uh, in the 1790s and all the way to 1815. And so this nation building 
uh, movement within France, which was much more in harmony with the 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 nation building uh, movement in Germany and in, in America and Russia. Uh, this one in France was tied to things like what we saw with Colbertism, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who in, innovated uh, the, the 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 policy that later inspired Hamilton based on state credit for canal building. This the things like uh, the the Treaty of Westphalia that you that was one of the big things that that helped create the nation state system that we currently know that the oligarchy has been trying to in, uh, undermine for like four centuries was created by uh, 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 Colbert and his his leader, his, his teacher, uh, Cardinal Jules Mazarin of mm-hmm. France, who helped put an end to the, the 30 years religious war that had decimated Germany uh, from 1618 to 1648. And, uh, and so that created that, if you asked actually what would be one basis of celebration of German independence or German nation nationalism, I would say the Peace of Westphalia would be a big milestone in that whole process. But it was ironically, like I said, organized by the French, <laughs> these French okay. grand strategists, right? Who okay, themselves... they're feisty. I-, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you want to keep the keep going with the pictures, but, you know, mm-hmm. you're talking about some of the economic, um, you know, leadership and influences, people like List. But I wanted to just get your insights into if you believe some of these um, artists and, you know, these great writers and thinkers and musicians also inspired the pro-humanist writers like Goethe um like you know the beautiful musicians uh, who make yeah I don't even know if you know Mozart was uh poisoned as well or uh Beethoven were all poisoned because they were inspiring the beauty of bringing out the best of humanity and then you see how Germany becomes uh, subverted perverted whatever when you get like dehumanist kind of nihilist like Nietzsche coming on stage later on. So the connection between the arts um, and, um, you know, how great an influence that has on the culture, which actually is upstream, I've learned, of politics. Uh, If you, you know, the culture, then that's the zeitgeist of the times of the people, then it's very hard to change things politically. So these people, like you see these incredible works coming out of Germany and unbelievable beauty and thinking. And then you see the worst of humanity uh, with the Nazism. Can you touch on that? Yeah, it's quite the irony. And eh? they say that the higher you are, the harder you fall, right? So where the culture is the most powerful and good, you will also get inversely the most uh, extreme expressions of evil in the perverse form of that cultural power when it's turned inside out. So but are it, they influencing it? These powers, you know, the ground, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they say we don't like that. And so they take a huge amount of effort to subvert these things, well, uh, to be particularly greatly- in the case of Germany, as you said, to keep them down. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a uh, a very useful book that I uh, I suggest people pick up if they want to really dig their teeth into this a lot more is The Cultural Cold War by Francis Stoner Saunders. It's the CIA in the world of arts and letters, oh. which goes through the story of the Congress for Cultural Freedom that was mm-hmm. set up by uh, people like James Burnham, former assistant to Trotsky, uh, became the founder mm-hmm. of the neo-con- neoconservative movement inside of America, uh, Alfred Kessler. Um, major CIA anti-humanist who uh, uh, was a, a leader of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, Bertrand Russell, um, was also a, 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 a person who steered this policy. And what this was, was the need, was a, a program funded, again, by the CIA, by taxpayers, to, after World War II, to promote um, a new form of artistic aesthetics 
for not just Germany, but it targeted Germany because that was the, the key focus was how to denazify Germany. And one of the, the lies that they put forth was, well, it's something in the German DNA and the genetics that makes Germany inclined to fascism and empire. That was a lie right there, anti-scientific lie. But they use that as the basis to say, well, thus, it's something in the, the German spirit. Everybody is born with a almost like a fourth Reich gene as children that we have to destroy by getting to the root of the problem of fascism, which is in the culture. And so they said, well, because fascists like Hitler profess to believe in truth, right, it, whether it was actually true or not, doesn't matter to them. They're like, because he asserted that he believes in truth, it is the belief in truth that is the problem. And because he liked things like uh, Wagner, which German love, uh, the Nazis and especially Hitler loved Wagner, yes. who was a, like an anti-Semitic, disgusting beast, who even Nietzsche uh, said really? is too degenerate for me and they had to like really yeah he wow. like they were close friends for a while and, and Nietzsche was like no my stomach's starting to turn it's too much hedonism really I didn't yeah. know that <laughs> so if, you, if you're gonna be too disgusting for a Nietzsche there's something really better how right? could a man create such beautiful music and be such a degenerate and, and that's the, that's a bigger embedded. question yeah but that's what? the thing right so there's something embedded there's something very different in a Wagnerian opera of Parseval or, or or something like that that you will that's very different from what Mozart does in his operas uh, or or Beethoven in Fidelio or in the symphonies of like the Requiem or in Schumann or Schubert. There's something very different and a bit disturbing embedded both in the storylines that Wagner selects, but also in how he chooses to convey it, um, which the, the Nazis really liked. Really? But, so uh, one of the... Go ahead. So one of the points that were framed with the Congress for Cultural Freedom is, okay, the new arts that we're going to promote will be the arts of eros, the arts of liberty, the arts of irrationalism, because the formula was, well, if fascism is based upon logic and truth and the arts that are associated with asserting logical uh, reason, like reason and truth in order to manipulate people and create wars, the art of democracy which is going to be the art of eros, the art of sensual gratification, mm -hmm. the art of irrationalism, the liberty from the tyranny of reason, as Nietzsche called it uh, earlier on. And so this became the the promotion of uh, atonalism um, in the arts. Um, Stravinsky also within uh, within the other f aspects of art, uh, abstract art, deconstructionist art, postmodernism, the Frankfurt School operatives from the Bolsheviks were all brought in to play a big role in shaping, like Theodore Adorno was brought in to play a big role shaping such uh, artistic movements, which Adorno did by promoting, he basically said, after Nazism, it would be a crime to try to uh, produce um, a, a Mozart symphony ever again. He actually, this, this is how they religious because wow. they believe that man was actually evil. And we, and to be a true artist, we had to reflect and mirror the ugliness of man's true nature uh, and not try to pay homage to the prettiness of our ideals or morality. That's that makes us hypocrites and thus dishonest and unauthentic. So to be authentic, you have to be ugly because you're putting a mirror to the world. Mm -hmm. Now, as Elma Deutscher, the wonderful German, uh, the, 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 the prodigy, the musical prodigy, who's I think not even 18 yet, has produced some amazing works of unique composition of classical music in our modern age, has made the point that if you do that, aren't you just making the world worse? How are you able to fulfill mm -hmm. your, your power as an artist to make the world better? You shouldn't exactly. You yeah. Um, 
So they didn't believe that. And they want that's what they put down as well as in the literature. They promoted a lot of the existentialist nihilist philosophers in schools. And it spread to all over Europe. It became the basis of the education reforms of the OECD in the 1950s and 60s that then were brought into the United States and to Canada to reform education um, around a different idea of what would make or what would be the purpose of schooling instead of creating whole integrated citizens. The idea now was to create well-behaved democratic beings who would follow consensuses, who would play good with others, right? This liberalism that denied truth because truth leads to wars and thus truth is bad. You all only have your personal feelings, which is true, but then you have infinite feelings. So you have infinite truths, right? And this gave rise to the infinite genders, the infinite uh, definitions, the the perversion of democracy that's currently being used as a a sledgehammer against nations of the world under Biden and the technocrats today. That's where it comes from. So that was done to destroy the German classics, the Weimar classic of Schiller, Goethe, Lessing, Mendelssohn, Mozart, Beethoven, all of that, which also gave rise to some of the greatest scientific discoveries of people like Carl Gauss, Wilhelm Weber, um, with their revolutionary discoveries in electricity, electrodynamics, physical space-time, Bernard Riemann, uh, Einstein, Max Planck, who opened up the door to the quantum world. All of the this is what they were all artists as well as scientists. That that unification of integrated uh, persons, loving truth and humble enough to recognize their own limitations as physical beings, but with the the childlike wonder and awe to go and explore God's creation and a belief in God was mm-hmm. what animated the best of the the Weimar classic movement, which was not specifically isolated to the, as a, you know, some people will call it the German f- folk spirit. They try to reduce it to some sort of ethno-cultural um, prejudice thing that's, pro- that's, that's, that's uh, specifically German, but it's not. It's that Germany provided, was an instrument an, uh, expressing this wonderful human universal culture, and they did in a very clear way but that's what had to be subverted because that was contagious. Wasn't it? Now you, I've, I've escaped me with uh, the physicist. Was it Kessler? Also, who's you know, it's this whole thought of is the universe a friendly place? Um, when you have this pro God, you know, harmony, God, love, you know, bringing the best about humanity versus the anti God, anti life, depopulationist. Uh, uh, he he mentioned something. I don't know if you can bring it up if it is relevant. Is it Kessler or who is the physicist who had that in his uh, works? Well, Arthur Kessler was um, a popularizer, a dishonest popularizer of Johannes Kepler's works. Kepler, in, Kepler, in yes. It's yeah, Kepler. you're probably thinking of Kepler, yeah. I'm thinking so, of Kepler, yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's interesting that you said that because Kessler actually wrote a book called The Sleepwalkers, which is a dishonest diatribe. <laughs> Um, really? to, try to control how people interpret Kepler. Right. They, okay. His thesis was, and he actually was rigorous. He read Kepler's works, which very few people do. And oh. he goes through all of Kepler's works where Kepler discovers his three planetary laws, uh, especially his harmonic law, which is the most, I believe, beautiful of the three laws. Yes. That's what, um, can you and, mention and, that for people? Because it, 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 this, this is kind of a core yeah, sure. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and just to say, Kersler, the way he sophistically, and again, he works for the highest level of grand strategist who set up the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, right? He's not just a- the bad a, side. A yeah, he's a, yeah. And and he makes the, the, the thesis that Kepler did not, Johannes Kepler did not know how he discovered things. He just went into a trance and like slept, sleepwalked into discoveries. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a Masonic um, obs- obscurationist approach to 
destroy people's ability to discover how the great minds of the past actually worked because they write Kepler writes his method of thinking down in his harmonies of the worlds, which people can buy and read and replicate oh. his memories. Actually, I, I've got a I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, if I had a hundred hours every oh, day. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. Well, I, I'm leaving a workshop right reading. now online uh, called the um, the Harmonies of the World. It's upside workshop. down. Turn it. Oh, upside, oh, yeah. Sorry. So it's the uh, the Harmonies oh. of the World by Kepler, and it's it's Kepler's original works published in 19, 1619, going through his discovery um, that the Platonic Pythagorean hypothesis of a musical arrangement of the planetary orbits in heaven mm -hmm. has a direct relationship to the heart of man and what goes on below when we play musical instruments when we, when we find the divisions on a on a musical string a harp or anything else and we find certain intervals to be beautiful certain intervals we find to be discordant mm -hmm. uh like you could say the the c uh f sharp relationship Mm -hmm. is what's known as the devil's interval they gave it that name because it's it's naturally discordant and when you actually play two strings that are that are uh, tightened to that interval that 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 have that relationship, instead of amplifying each other, right? They will deamplify. They create uh, def uh, interference patterns, interference waves that cause them to immediately stop vibrating. Whereas wow. most uh, chords that are in harmony will amplify each other's um, amplitude, right? So they're in harmony. And so he actually does that. So Kepler takes the available data um, that is known in his time in the, in the seven, early 17th century and looks towards certain anomalies that pop out, like the behavior of Mars every couple of years, every 600, every 687 days. Mars does like what's called a retrograde motion. You look out at the night sky at the same time every night for 687 days. And all of a sudden, Mars will always be at a different point in the night sky, but always be moving a little bit more to the left, depending on where you are, if you're, you know. Um, but all of a sudden, for two weeks, it'll begin to move backwards. And then after two weeks, it'll re it'll return back to its natural motion for another 687 days, and then it'll do it all again um, in almost two years' time, but now a little bit more to the left and never the exact same distance. So you take any, any interval of 687 days and look at that retrograde place, right? So 17, so you could say like 15... 90, 1592, 1594, 1596. And that retrograde is happening in it in, in not the same distance from itself. So there's um, but it but it, but there is a repetition. So Kepler is using these anomalies to generate um a a an explanation that is satisfying to reason, that is not simply descriptive. He right, he doesn't just use the existing standard model uh geometries that existed in his time that involved an assumption that there were certain things like absolute circles that you had to fit all of your data into these absolute circles because god is perfect and the circle is perfect so thus the orbits must be circular and he's like no 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 that's never been proven that's an assumption mm -hmm. that's blind and uh and if you believe that it's circles well there's going to be discontinuities that then you can only explain away by creating little epicycles little fake orbits moving around your circular orbits that don't exist but you have to presume that they do as a mm -hmm. as a as a mathematician to make the dad the observational data fit your model so mm. kepler is like no let's assume none of that and he does it in a, in a rigorous way and by the end he he by proving that there's elliptical not circular orbits um and with the sun being at one foci but then you have also a set of relations of different type of ellipses with different eccentricities right different extremes some mm -hmm. more circular some less circular and that have points of minimum maximum speed and distance right so 
the earth would be at a maximum and a minimum in winter and summer around the sun, right? Every planet would have a minimum maximum. And he takes those minimum maximum to see, okay, is there a proportion that we find by by assembling them all, all the known planets of the solar system that provide a harmonic relationship? And he does. He proves that the hard and soft musical scales both coexist in the in um, our solar system. And even though he didn't know about Uranus and Venus and Pluto, as the years went by and these planets were discovered, there were they could be fit into his system and find a coherence. It still works. Wow. So that's what what Max Planck worked on. That's what Leibniz, Gottfried Leibniz, the great scientist who was an enemy of Isaac Newton in the British school of, of empiricist scientists. Leibniz was the great German scientist who founded the the Prussian Academy of Sciences. He founded the Russian Academy of Sciences. He was he was paid, he was uh, um, hired by Tsar Peter the Great to go to Russia to found the basis of Russian industrial policy in the in 1710, and that's where he created the basis for the Russian Academy of Sciences that was founded a little after his death. Um, he was an, an ally of American patriots in America who were who were training Ben Franklin, like Cotton Mather and. Uh, and John Winthrop, mostly John Winthrop Jr., um, who were in in correspondence with Leibniz there. So he had an inter- he was working with missionaries in China, and he he published the first Chinese uh, newspaper called no- uh, News from China in Germany and across Europe in France, where he um, he was uh, l- working to find the points of common universal accord between the Chinese Confucian ethos and the Christian ethos. And he found them that there were common ideas of yes. loving your bro- loving your neighbor, doing uh, God's will on earth known as Tiang, Tiang Min, which is the harmony uh, of heaven that gives us mm-hmm. the mandate to have a good government or an illegitimate government. If we're abusive of the mandate of heaven, that's very important in the Confucian scriptures. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what Leibniz was popularizing to help, the world understand that no we we can work together we don't have to go to wars or anything like that now leibniz was a follower of kepler who discovered the calculus based on the challenge that kepler had put forth in this very book i just i just held up oh wow and the new astronomy earlier on kepler said look i don't have a language to describe nonlinear changes in physical geometries it doesn't i don't have it i he had to do a bit of a fudge to get his his results mm-hmm. And he put forth to future mathematicians the challenge to say, if anybody can do this, this would be a great service to humankind, which Leibniz picks up and oh. does. And oh, this is what, wow. what Newton plagiarizes oh. uh, on behalf of Samuel Hook, Clark, who are his handlers at the Royal Academy, which is a Rosicrucian black magic occult uh, academy in Britain that was being set up by these occultists. These like literally what Gullar, what I was going to say something, but they're they didn't really do science. They stole scientific discoveries from continental Europe, especially Germany, repackaged it in the form of Kepler's three laws that became reduced to a descriptive formula in the form of the inverse square law that was then associated with a branding, like a, a Newton oh. who then said that apples fall on my head and I make discoveries that way by just discovering nature. I don't need to know hypotheses. I don't need to use hypotheses. And he says in his Principia Mathematica that if you want to be a good scientist, you have to use the art of reason that I use, which is one of the rules of reason is no hypotheses. Just observe and describe. That is a guarantee for forever failures. Exactly. The calculus from Leibniz as well, and many other things were stolen and attributed to this figure of Newton, and that can be proven to be true. And so, it was, yeah. Well, I I, uh, I took you off on a tangent there, but I think the audience will enjoy that because- Here's the thing. Here, I was going to bring this back. So okay. all of this became the basis of a science of physical economy. So Leibniz mm-hmm. was actually the founder and, and Lyndon LaRouche, 
who I, I really admire as a, he's oh, a recently deceased philosopher. Too. And I have to say, because you brought, uh, connected me to him through our incredible uh, conversations, and I've been looking at his work is absolutely incredible. I encourage everyone to read some of his books. Can you just give one or two? Well, um, I would just go online and buy um, Genius Can Be Taught. It's an assembly of some of his most... That that work, if people just take the time to read that, or his Science of Christian Economy is both... In both cases, he references that Leibniz was the founder of the modern science of physical economy. And it's true. When you read Leibniz's 1680-something science, uh, economy and society paper, it's short, but he does outline the basis of physical economics. And it's based upon an idea of a harmony of interests. And that if you do things in such a manner that appreciates the real standards of free will, inspiration of the people, the the need for freedom of the individual, while at the same time recognizing the laws needed for the maintenance of the human system as a system, food, water, product, water, uh, uh, industrial production, like you need to have these things, which is why Leibniz was also pushing things like the the steam engine to create. And he he used and, 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 and popularized the steam engine quite a bit with Denis Papin an assassinated inventor that he worked very closely with from France to revolutionize and liberate human labor from being like beasts of burden, but instead uh, Mm -hmm. machine tool operators. This was, but, but Leibniz, so his ideas of physical economy directly informed the thinking of the greatest um, minds, including Ben Franklin and Ben Franklin's teachers and network in America. This idea, it was given new life with Alexander Hamilton's science of physical economy which was a science. He basically merged. He found the the natural unification of the arts and the sciences around human emancipation of empire. And this became a branch of physics, but a physics tied to aesthetics, the arts and the soul, the need for freedom. So it's 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 like the queen of all sciences. And this is where the oligarchy has been battling um, against this better tradition within within humanity for control over the science of human civilization. And the Congress for Cultural Freedom operators, the rise of the transhumanists, the eugenicists, they're trying to also create an evil version of this thing that Kepler and Leibniz understood that if there's a harmony above, then that informs directly scientifically the harmony below. Um, It's not hermetic, it's not a cult, but it's direct. We can certainly agree. Uh, I hope at least all, all of uh, anyone watching this that there's we're, we're sorely lacking harmony in the world now. Yeah. We can barely get harmony be in a in a family, let alone within a, a community or within a country. And now geopolitically, we've you know all of these uh, very scary conflicts. And I've never heard in my lifetime the mention of nuclear war more often. It seems to be like constantly mentioned. And mm-hmm. people are recklessly playing uh, with fire. Um, so I, it feels like we've gone backwards. Now, what happened in Germany? So the, the Federal Reserve was created. Can you take us back? This, these wonderful, great thinkers. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I mean, there is a big period of time. But I think there was absolute massive damage done to the the, um, to the Germans and I study um, like like mu- like music free you know your own thoughts and emotions have a frequency I've been studying that quite a lot in the last little while and when you're in a, a low frequency like fear you know which is what the media loves to keep us in these lower level frequencies you can't uh, you can't create beautiful things you can't bring out the best in yourself when you're fearful you're more you know reptilian survival same when you're in shame and they really after the atrocities of the Holocaust, 
for decades, the Germans have been struggling. They have been made to be, feel ashamed. And so I think it's hard to produce great works when you're living in shame. Like they can't move on. They're being forced to live in shame. Oh, endless shame. Can mm. you just take us back and, and describe this, you know, how this was strategically created? What happened? And the whole Nazism, it's very confusing to mm. a lot of people how this how this developed in this beautiful country of great thinkers. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's it's a very tough but it but important question to pursue. And I would actually advise people who want to really get a handle on this. I'll say something, but I would really suggest people read my wife's uh first volume called The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set. Uh The Birth of International Fascism and Anglo-American Foreign Policy. It's a big book. Okay, I'll have to get that one. I don't have that one. I'll send you a PDF of it or maybe I'll mail it to you. But um it, it it's thorough it's thorough and it's volume one so volume two is going to go into um excellent something dark um and i'm going to say a little bit about that based on her briefings to me and a little bit of my research on okay. this um yeah you, you have to see number one what i meant what i was showing people with the berlin to baghdad railway yes revival the spread of cultural excellence around the world um that was understood to be a mortal threat to the system of empire anywhere mm -hmm. and everywhere because it was based upon something that plato had written about as this this age where empire could not could no longer exist if kings became philosophers which is lovers of wisdom but that would all to be that in a true way if anybody reads P plato's works you would have to recognize that that would mean that the leaders would have to create leaders that every citizen would have to be encouraged to attain wisdom and excellence. And thus every so every person would have to become a sovereign, not mm -hmm. one sovereign. And if you could do that, where people find a, a, a willing love and joy of the pleasure of discovery and sharing, then you could have a society that would no longer be compatible with systems of manipulation and would be unwilling to live in the caves in Shadowland, believing in puppets and puppet shows by a technocratic elite which is right. book seven of the, of the allegory of the cave. Mm -hmm. This was put forth in more, in a more advanced form in uh, Cicero's Commonwealth, his own Republic, as well as his laws before he was murdered by the cults managing the Roman empire. It was put forth again in a more brilliant manner in Augustine's city of God, which is again, a wonderful study on how Rome lost its mandate of heaven and how it could get it back. And um, uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, on on the side of uh, he wasn't he, bad, but he's he's overpraised in my view. He's a stoic. That's what I was going to ask you. Just as an aside, because I'm reading his book Meditations, I just wanted yeah, there's to like good he's a bit of everything mixed bag. Yeah, there's, there's good therapeutic advice for like you know living in a world in turmoil and trying to like balance yourself. But overall, as a stoic, there's some major epistemological problems okay. when it comes to the issue of love, uh, the true deeper meaning of love, the universal sentiments. He He's not capable of going there because of his philosophical commitments Okay. okay. versus, let's okay. say, a Cicero who's not a Stoic and he's not an Epicurean. Cicero is neither one. He's a Platonist of um, a very high moral caliber, uh, but who's capable of living in the world at the same time. He's not living in clouds. He's able to navigate in the Byzantine yes. terrain the of the world of yes. the world that he's like fighting within, right? O overthrowing the Catalan conspiracy uh, to create a Roman Empire way before it was going to happen. So, you know, you got to do both and this is where again um i think so germany was a, a a primary driving force in under bismarck for ushering in this age of brotherhood 
of different cultures and civilizations going all the way to e uh, China, down into Egypt, the Muslim world, but also into the United States. And um, and so his ouster was a big deal. In 1890, um, you had King uh, Albert, uh, Edward Albert VII, who was the uncle of uh, of the Kaiser. The Kaiser loved a lot of pomp and regalia, kind of a low ego level person, not a bad guy, but simple. And he uh, believed his his flatterers. He's one of those those leaders. Can never trust them. And he had a lot in common in that sense with his um, his other cousin, the Tsar Nicholas II, who was just coming in. You know, uh, Alexander the sorry, Nick, uh, Alexander the Third was in the, was about to be killed probably arsenic poisoning in, in 1896. And the replacement uh, czar Nicholas II was, again, a very, very inclined to believe his flatterers, the courtiers. Um, he There was a lot of occult operations. So the Theosophist Network of Blavatsky had been set up um, as a hub of coordinating international intelligence around a new paradigm that would replace Judeo-Christian um, uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview around some weird synthesis of a variety of Eastern mysticism, occultism. It branched off into rune um, Kabbalism. They were big on on like the Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah. Um, they were big on rune, which is a, a sort of Nordic variation of Kabbalism is like looking at this uh, at, at the runes as if there's like secret hidden knowledge that is knowable by an initiated class that would okay. receive messages from some like you know, uh, forces right, right. in the Himalayan mountains or something, or the, or within the subterranean right. levels of the Vril within, within the hollow earth that the Nazis ended up believing in later on. And people like Sir Edward Bulwer Lytton was a major British grand strategist who put forth a lot of this design, this, this, this template of what became known as the revival of the ancient ISIS cults, um, of, of ancient Rome in the form of what became fascism. So inside of Germany, um, and inside of Russia, you had a lot of occultism. People Is were doing that insane. how Nazism was created? I mean, what yeah. created Nazism? Was the yeah, that's what it was. I mean, Nazism was an occult black magic uh, priesthood under the New Templars, set up by Himmler, who was a pagan, a hardcore pagan uh, mystic. And um, and you had a, a, a branching off, a subgroup of the Theosophists, uh, run by a guy named uh, Guido von List. Um, and another guy named uh, Lenz von Liebenfels or something um, who created what's known as the uh, the German Armenian order and the Ariosophists. And the Ariosophists were essentially um, they, they it's very similar to the Blavatsky theosophists that were also, you know, they're basically taking the worst elements of, of Indian mysticism, the worst elements of 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 different cultural dynamics that had similarities to the oligarchical culture of the West. There, there's similar dark age um, traditions in various cultures. And they were like zeroing in on everything that they could work with to create a, a hodgepodge uh, thing around a new mysticism that would, uh, and, and so you had these, these sub branches. Some of them became like in, in the case of Russia, you had the enemies of the reformers um, the enemies of of Count Vita, Sergei Vita, and Alexander II and the Third, who were again both assassinated by these anarchist um, terrorist cells, deployed themselves from London in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. It was anarchists everywhere. That was like today's terrorism, deployed by by intelligence agencies. And in, in our modern day, that was like what 
London really? was doing organizing international anarchist terrorists, blowing up statesmen like or killing them like McKinley or Garfield or anybody. Right. The princess of of mm-hmm. Korea was killed by one of these operations. Um, and so this people, was done. I'm oh, sorry. People just want to ask about the symbol because it's got a real negative connotation. I don't even want to say out loud. You can just in case I get a fill it. But this symbol of Nazism is that this is directly connected to a pagan symbol um it, that they use uh yeah yeah i mean the, it it people say it's just a coincidence no it's 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 literally guido von list and um had his own view madame blavatsky wrote in her isis unveiled and the secret doctrine of the imp- the mystical importance of this swastika um which could go either way clockwise or counterclockwise and like there's no single meaning for the swastika you know this goes back we, we've seen examples of this in in china in ancient china which means yes. compassion love you've seen right. examples of this emerge in india which has a, a different meaning of peace harmony the other there's different variations some have a yin yang interpretation that one uh one clockwise one counterclockwise means good and evil the balance of light and darkness and a manichaean sort of interpretation which i think is more how the Ariosophist Armenian Brotherhood uh, priesthood was thinking. That's how the, the New Templar Order, which created the, or popularized the Black Sun of the occult mm-hmm. in some weird German castle overseen by Himmler. Um, they had like, you know, 12 core knights, but they had a whole rite of initiation around this this New Templar Order. Um, that, that I think, has more of that Manichaean, because the, the Templars were also Manichaeans who believed in this like equal force of, of darkness and that evil is needed to create good. So good is the consequence of evil, but evil is thus more powerful because it creates good. And you get this whole weird mental gymnastics that right. involves, you know, drinking baby blood at a certain point. <laughs> like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how you went from like zero to a thousand that fast, but that's how they do it. And so the the the, the Thula Society was the outgrowth Um of of the, the Ariosophist movement, which popularized the the swastika and and other SS and other you know Nordic runes, Viking runes that were associated with sort of because you know you could like kind of look the way you could do the the I Ching, you could also do the runes. You know, you mm-hmm. it's kind of like right. what they were doing. You just you dump the runes. You sort of are an initiate. Yeah. You could read the, the the how they fell, what sounds they make, and then right. pretend that they're like gods channeling the pagan gods of right. Odin channeling messages to the elites that could then advise governments on what to do so this this is so confusing though like how did they get adopted into the culture like the army and the military and then becoming the driving force behind world war one and two and then the 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 holocaust i mean well they got the they taught the elites they they Uh, taught the elites uh first and foremost so once once uh, Otto von Bismarck was fired by uh, by the Kaiser. There was a vacuum of leadership. The Kaiser started putting in um, replacement chancellors that were operatives, and uh, he started making all sorts of foolish missteps that put the ball into mo- the trajectory. Now became World War One was inevitable um, as soon as Otto von Bismarck was flushed. And of course, the the way that these Iagos work, right, whispering in the ear of the the Kaiser. Was you know like Otto von Bismarck? He's he's trying to take all your power. Don't right. people look up to him more than you? Get rid of him. He's subverting your goodness. And mm-hmm. this is also what was done to Count Sergei Vita in 1903. First, when Vita was fired by stupid Nicholas II Tsar, who also was told by his Russian Okrana, you know the, that's the Russian secret police uh, agents who were encircling him, whispering his ear, saying the same thing about Vita, who was again a grand strategist, saving Russia. And he flushed, he flushed Vita 
Mm-hmm. And then when 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 there was a total crisis, you know, the Japanese had attacked Russia in 1904, decimated the the Russian navy. There was a huge crisis in Russia, and Vita was brought back in to troubleshoot. Vita was like, "Look, the reason why this is all happening, and the reason why you have like mass Bolshevik movements that are ready to overthrow you, because that was already bubbling up. There was the first Bolshevik um, revolution attempt in 1905. He's like, the reason why you have this is because of the pogroms. You've you've been falling into the advice of your courtiers, who are oh. the land owning feudalists." The, the old families that say that they go back to Rurik, the founder of the of, of Russia back in the, the, the days of Khazaria, they're like these these same uh, feudalists are are telling you that the protocols of Zion is a real document. And Nicholas was being fed this. It was actually crafted by members of the French Russian Akrana um, around a follower, a, a disciple of Madame Blavatsky, who, who uh, popularized this in the Russian courts. Uh, the Tsar Nicholas II's wife was also a progeny of of Queen Victoria. The 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 the, bre- the broad were just spread out everywhere, and she was also assigned with many advisors around him to believe that there is this Freemasonic Jewish conspiracy out to destroy the monarchies, and thus you have to fight against the Jews, put them in programs, crack down, which he did, and he also abandoned all of the the industrial development projects of Vita because the idea was well, look, Vita is using money from banks international banks and some of those banks are tied to Rothschild affiliates who are using money from Europe to fund the rail development and the industrial development of Russia. See, Vita is a Rothschild stooge, just like they did the same Hamilton earlier. And they said, that's why you have to flush him. And and it, you know, stupid Nicholas flushed him, had his his army wiped out. 50,000 Russian troops were made POWs in in Japanese camps for a couple of years. That's that, while these Russians were brought into the Japanese camps, you had Jacob Schiff and uh, and many of those were those those financiers who were setting up the groundwork for the the Federal Reserve were the same financiers. Bernard Baruch, um, Edward Mandelhaus, again, Schiff, Max Verberg, Paul Vorberg, um, Milner were putting a lot of effort into building up the Japanese fascist complex, the Japanese um, ethno fascist um, nationalism that became the basis of what worked with Hitler in World War II, but that was already being cultivated with the Japanese war machine provided by with mass support by Britain building the 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 destroyers, the battleships and other things that so they were doing that. And at the same time, when you had all these POWs from Russia inside of Japan who had lived through a lot of hunger, economic injustice because the Tsar was not advancing Vita's economic reforms, they were they had a lot of hate for Russia who abandoned them and was abusive and had an um a, you know a, a corporate aristocracy of feudalists managing them they hated that and so it became perfect um soil for propaganda bolshevik propaganda that was circulated with the money of Jacob Schiff and others to radicalize these POWs who were then when they went back to Russia became the vanguard for Trotsky and other other bolsheviks right. What a no. tragedy. Uh, I mean, year, like decades of, of human suffering. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. So the same I thing was happening in, in, in uh, Germany. So you, you had the, the Kaiser was an occultist. He, he believed in seances. He wasn't a bad guy. He was soft minded. Um, and he was into seances, just like the Tsar Nicholas was just like so many of the aristocracy was, and that made them really mushy. And liable right. to become servants of empire, and and this trickled down. So you had within this um, environment 
this anti because the protocols of Zion were key. The same figures who were working with Theodore Herzl in shaping the first Zionist Congress in 19, uh, 1897, 96, were the same figures who were working on building up fascism as the basis of the New World Order. Uh, Lord Balfour, the, the uh, Lloyd George operation, the uh, Lord Chamberlain, who was working with uh, Theodore Herzl and was a pro-fascist in Britain, um, head of the colonial, ter- uh, colonial uh, department, was also promoting this thing as well. They were also the ones promoting the Protocols of Zion, which again, it's a forgery. It's a fi- no evil person talks like this. It was based upon a dialogue that was written, a dialogue between Montesquieu and Machiavelli, which was a critique of Napoleon III that was revamped around this conspiratorial story, written like a comic book. It's written like a like it's something only children who watch Disney movies and believe in like oh. that type of stupid Lex Luthor character. That's how they talk. Like we are going to take over the world with our. Uh, Can you clarify? I mean, you you're so like you've been at this for so many years. A lot of people are just like they're just trying to get their hand hand like just understand the basics. So Zionism, are you connecting it to fascism? How like people don't understand where did it come from? How is it connected to the Jewish plight? Is it separate? What is it? Uh, okay, there, there's, there's, like I said, there's got, the, the clash yeah. of the two Americas, clash of the two Russias, clash of the two, there's clash of the two Zions, right? So you, you have two, two Israels. Jewish yeah. Clash of two Israels. You have, like I was saying earlier, you know, you, you have what was expressed by Yitzhak Rubin and Arafat when they shook hands in 1993 and tried to put the ball into motion for a two state solution based on cooperation around economic development projects which Yitzhak Rabin asked the World Bank that, can we please use that money that you're going to give us as part of a, a multi-level tranche to invest in water that would be needed for both the Palestinians and Israelis together to start working on infrastructure together to start healing the wounds of the past. And he, there was an emergency meeting at the World Bank. It was denied. Only the money would be that would be allowed would be towards debt repayments, not towards infrastructure, which destroyed the hope for a, uh, uh, creating a, a durable peace process and then and he was then assassinated he was, yes and he oh. assassinated him now was what he a year? zionist what year huh? was that that was 1995 he was killed wow people could look up his work to get a better understanding yeah, what Rabin. could look like right I yeah mean, exactly yeah, like yitzhak Rabin, who had done war atrocities against the palestinians um in the 70s and the early 80s he he changed he actually said that the future because somebody asked him a, a journalist in Israel, like, why are you making peace with your enemies? And he said, like, the you don't make peace with your friends. And um, and he said, the courage, the future belongs to those who have the courage to change their axioms. Speaking of himself, but also warning those around him that they needed to change their axioms because the current idea of Zionism dominant at that moment was going to lead towards all-out religious war and the extermination, ultimately, of the well, Jews. Right. Um, so they were falling into the trap. And he was speaking out against those like the Likud party at the time of Bibi and Netanyahu, who was calling for his assassination, saying that he was subverting the dream of the Third Temple of Solomon, which was the promise. So, you know, according to certain Kabbalistic rabbis, there's nowhere in the Torah does, does any of this detail come in. But he's like, you know, it's it's our destiny to uh, have greater Israel and have the Third Temple of Solomon's temple rebuilt on the Temple Mound. And it, it's only by doing that that somehow the Messiah will come. And it's like, for, that's highly interpretive. Nowhere does it say any of that. And Yitzhak Rabin was like, no, we can do this in a peaceful way. We can we can coexist and co- live with our neighbors who are Muslims and start healing the pa- the wounds of the past. 
I wish he was uh, the leader now because Netanyahu is uh, is is really fear mongering and you know what they're doing uh, the solution of cutting off all electricity, food, and water. Um, I, yeah, I think he called them terrible. human animals. Like you got yeah. the, the head of the Israeli Defense Forces who actually is now do, cutting off food, water, and electricity, which is going to kill children en masse, and he called them human animals. Like that's I, how. These, uh, it's yeah, disgusting. it's. it's I know there's a border with Egypt and hopefully that will, I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen there uh, with along the Gaza Strip if they will allow people to come in. But what this is a disaster and the fear mongering because of now Iran, um, you know, it seems like they're beating the war drums. A lot of these uh, far leaning conservatives. Uh, yet they're being played and no matter what violence has been done and it is atrocious. Um, we must look for peaceful solutions. Um, and where are the peacekeepers uh, is what I'm asking. We look at what happened in Russia, Ukraine with unnecessary horrific numbers of death. They're saying 500,000 plus Ukrainian deaths uh, and, you know, uh, people, missionaries and whatever coming over from Canada and U.S. deaths. So, I mean, war per perpetrates war. Um, so, I mean, we went back to World War One and Two uh, with Germany being the center point. And even Churchill stated numerous times, he has it on quote, you know, we must take care of the, the German production machine. It's a threat to our, you know, to our banks, to our London banks, you know, if they're productive on their own, we must crush them. I mean, as one of the, the big factors, I mean, we see economic factors, oil interests at play for most of the war, um, most war. Wars, and that particularly throughout the, the Middle East. But with regards to Germany, it was their incredible productive capabilities. The Germans have always been known for their engineering, their innovation, their yep. production. And so, you know, now it's drumming towards a World War III scenario is what they want. You know, that's their, their that's what they're going for. Can you comment on did the did the you know was World War II really won by the Allies? What happened with all those Nazis? There's well, a lot of speculation with paper, uh, what Operation paperclip. paperclip that they didn't die and even Hitler didn't die. I even read that Obama is uh, is a like a, a great nephew or something or um, you know. There's so much speculation, but can you comment on some of that? Yeah. Um. Or, again, um, my wife's book really really important for people who want a thorough answer to that. Um, okay. that's why she wrote the book was to get across like how the Nazis didn't lose the war, but were incorporated into Operation Gladio, the NATO secret armies and all of these things. Uh, so her book, The Empire in Which the Black Sun Never okay. Set, Perfect. very important book. And it also explains why there are the issue of Nazism in Ukraine, what's been cultivated and deployed as a weaponized uh, movement or in Georgia with the Georgian Legion, same type of fascist machinery that goes back to World War Two of these uh, Nazi terrorists or that were working within Israel as well. Like uh, th there's certain Nazis that were brought in to train the Mossad, whether you like it or not, that's a fact, or that were brought into um, into South America, into Argentina to, to train, to work with and advise like uh, right-wing fascist governments in Chile and in Argentina that worked on behalf of Kissinger and George Schultz to overthrow socialist governments like Salvador Allende uh, that were not playing by the rules of the game and were doing too much to protect the people from the United Fruit, City of London, CIA, Mayor Lansky, mafia operations that were trying to destroy things. So again, it, it shows that it's not really about socialist versus capitalist. That's that's a Cold War trope. It's fake. 
It's it goes back to imperialist, um, oligarchical feudalist, if you want to call it, versus um, human, <laughs> and it takes on a variety of of expressions. You know, at different times, communist governments have been uh, um, used by human beings who care about human beings to do good against the empire. Like again, mm -hmm. I mentioned Salvador Allende. I could make I could name a lot more. Uh, what about Cuba? Cuba? I mean, Fidel Castro kicked out United Fruit. He kicked out Marilansky, shut down the entire CIA narcotics operation in Cuba. Cuba was supposed to be, before Fidel Castro, the center of what was known as the, the Golden Circle. It's a Confederate Albert Pike Freemasonic um, mm -hmm. empire that would involve uh, the, U the, the southern states having broken free of Lincoln's Union and setting up a new capital in Cuba. That was the plan of the Knights of the Golden Circle with a giant radius going down to most of South America, Central America, and eventually the, the, the complete takeover of North America and Canada too, on behalf of the British, which always ran these young young movements, which is what the Confederacy was. Albert Pike, George Saunders were, were part of the Mazzini-Palmerston Young America Freemasonic movement. Palmerston and Mazzini were also working with the young Germans, to weaponize young, disenfranchised, alienated uh, young people in Germany to become weapons of mob uh, battering rams against the state, which was trying to bring in Friedrich List's reforms, which was anti-corruption reforms as well as economic reforms. They were doing the same thing with young France, young right. England, young uh, young Albania, young Europe, uh, young young Turkey. All of that was done coordinated by. Uh, specifically Mazzini-connected, Palmerston-connected, Freemasonic outfits tied to what Albert Pike was doing as he was trying to set up this Knights of the Golden Circle. Anton Chaikin did wonderful work on this in his Treason in America book, uh, another wonderful book written in 1984 by an EIR-affiliated, uh, a good friend of mine, Anton Chaikin. People should Google his name. Oh, excellent. Well, listen, you know, you've, um, you've been so generous with your time. And, you know, as, a, as always, I, I'll have to listen to this once or twice again. People love what you have to say. You have uh, seen the patterns throughout history. Can you end by giving advice to the world on um, what? how could we uh, move towards peace instead of these horrific conflicts, no matter what has been happened, because I understand the pain and the suffering. I can, I mean, and, and, and I can only imagine in some regards, in some places, because I was born a Canadian, we are lucky to have uh, lived in Canada, uh, you know, conflict free, uh, per se, not, you know, not being able to get food and, and take care of the basics for your children. But what would you say to the world now? We are in the precipice of potentially, you know, World War Three now. Um, do you have any advice to end off for today based on what you, your deep, deep dive into philosophy, mm -hmm. history, and all these other things? Yeah, don't, don't be satisfied with shadows or what anybody tells you. Um, believe nothing that you haven't discovered for yourself and do what works. So historically, certain things have worked. Um, I've touched on a few of those examples. There's others that I haven't touched on. Do that because the empire loses control when we do stuff like that. Um, Yitzhak Rabin was tapping into it. Nasser, JFK, who was working with Nasser, who was fighting Peace. and, and shut down the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Yes. In Egypt and beyond. Um, that works. Um, the, the idea of peace through cooperation, read Schiller, read Schiller's aesthetical letters, read Lessing. And especially my wife did a whole deep dive on uh, Lessing's Nathan the Wise, which was a wonderful oh, intervention. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, I She did oh. a lecture. I'll send it to you. You could share it out. And I it's a wonderful intervention that, Nef that Lessing did, friend of Moses Mendelssohn, on the anti the Jew-Muslim-Christian problem. And he did that in a beautiful way in the form of this, this wonderful play 
that demonstrated what what's human. And you even had some Templars in his play who were trying to mess things up. Um, and ignorant, ignorant priests trying to mess things up and create a crusading war in the Middle East. And he intervenes in a most loving, beautiful way. And that type of thing oh. always works. And it also oh, goes love. back to Khazaria and the, yes. the Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Confucian alliance of uh, the ninth century that was des destroyed with the Crusades and the destruction, the subversion of that Renaissance dynamic. Um, nothing that people have been told about Kazaria that's popular in the alt media world is uh, is true. It's all a lie. Kazaria actually was a key battleground for the good. Really? Um, we'll have to yeah, do we that a, a different time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we're staring down another path. And I okay, know. So that being said, I'm, so. I'm laying, I just want to provoke people a little bit. So check out that stuff. Check out my wife's book, my book. Yes. Um, Where can and, they reach you again? Because you've got to follow Matthew Arrett, everyone. He's got. Uh, such insights that I know your time, you're going all over the world. Where can they find, where can they follow go you to, again? Just for go the to Canadian, CanadianPatriot.org and RisingTideFoundation.net. If they want to follow my Substack, it's MatthewArrett.Substack.com. And uh, Tish, you're doing great work as well. I'm, I'm very inspired that there's a spark plug like you out there, just lighting fires and uh, and doing the good. So in love, in love. I'm a peacekeeper. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, I can yeah, be no, a philosopher king. Peaceful way possible. <laughs> yes. <of course. laughs> right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great yeah. week. Bye. Bye.